Hello and welcome. If you didn't know, I'm your host, Catherine, psychic medium and self-worth coach, true crime addict, and this is Murder and Mediumship. If this is your first time listening, I am so glad you found the show. And if it isn't, and you haven't left some stars and a shout out, then head on over to Spotify and iTunes and spread some love. Some... The show can reach the ears of even more listeners. The reviews really help a lot more than I think you will ever know. I want to take a moment as well to thank the show's patrons whose contribution to the show have funded donations too. I'm so excited for this. The very first time that we are using the Patreon funds for a donation, I have selected the Black Queer and Intersectional Community to be the charity that we donate to for the months of January through March of 2022. Now, the Black Queer and Intersectional Community is a grassroots collective working toward a world where Black LGBTQIA plus people can live safe, healthy, and flourishing lives. Since they are a grassroots organization, they rely primarily on donations to fund their work. And of course, I will have a link to check out that organization in the show notes, as well as links to all of the resources for this episode. Because of you guys, we are donating $1,050 to this organization, and it makes my heart so, so, so happy to know that we've raised that money. So you guys, this is incredible. Thank you so much for your pledges as together we will make a difference because even small changes and even small actions like this add up to the bigger stuff. So thank you so, so much. And again, I know I'm kind of going to ramble in the beginning of this episode. If you are a regular listener and you have come back for this, thank you so much. I know that it's been a couple of weeks since I released something and I just wanted to share with you all kind of what's been going on in the last few weeks. So March actually celebrated one full year of murder and mediumship. We are at over 50,000 listens and I cannot even, 50,000 downloads, I'm so sorry, I cannot even express to you how grateful I am for this. It's, it's huge. And this, this podcast is my passion project, my, my, my baby, my pride and joy. And I am so proud of how far this has come and how far it's going to continue to go. So before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that for the last couple of weeks, I, I did hit a little bit of burnout. I was a little tired. There was a lot of stuff going on in our personal lives and none of it even really bad. Just a lot of it was, it was a lot of it and it was overwhelming. Um, Mid-March, we actually put an offer in on what's essentially our dream home with like one very small exception, which is such a minute detail. We put an offer on our dream home and in a market where we didn't really, we know that most things are going well over asking and falling into bidding wars. We had the seller of the home accept a lower offer from us when they had been offered something higher with very similar stipula stipulations to ours. And they went to church and they prayed about it and they came home and decided that we were still the people they wanted to go with. And we feel just so freaking blessed by the universe to have that working out for us thus far. And then we were under contract within 48 hours of listing our home. We were under contract. So we listed within a week of finding this property and we had all three dogs and I'm sorry, both dogs. I forget sometimes we're down to two. Um, 
we had all the kids, all the dogs in 50 different places trying to get the house ready to list and then for photos and everything within a week's time. It was insanity, but we did it. We actually had one seller or excuse me, one buyer walk from the contract. They had changed their mind about the cost and everything and and that's fine. And then wound up under contract the same day with another offer. So we are just kind of riding the waves of insanity here and it's been thrilling and exciting. And if you have any questions about manifestation and what you can accomplish in your life, I beg of you to seek me out because it's just, it's wild. I, four years ago, filed filed bankruptcy because I was in such a tough place and working eight or nine restaurant shifts a week to make ends meet in my marriage was a mess. And now we're donating a thousand dollars to a grassroots organization who's improving the lives of, of others in, in, in a really great way. And then we're also watching our lives improve dramatically. And it's so exciting. So if you need any assistance with manifestation, please know that that is something that I will be teaching more of on my social media account. So please, please follow. And if you have been waiting to book a reading with me as well, I know that I've been booked up through May. I actually just opened up a couple of readings in April. So I typically don't work Wednesdays, but with the move coming up, I figured, hey, why not? Let's get a little extra a little extra work in before that happens because I don't know what my summer schedule will look like. It's definitely going to be minimized a little bit once mid-June hits and my kids are out of school. So if you are looking to book a reading before summertime, I just opened up a chunk of reading appointments for this month. So get in and grab them before they are gone. And once June hits, it will shift into kind of like a three-day availability during the week and a couple of appointments at night. So those will be coming as well. And one more thing coming in May of 2022 is a membership. I'm so excited for this. Many of you know, and many of you attended the intuitive development six week course, and I will be hosting that again come July. However, in May, I will be launching a program, a membership called Intuitively Aligned, which is a private membership community dedicated to creating safe space for intuitives stepping into their gifts. This is strictly for people This is not strictly for people growing their gifts. It's also for people who maybe want to be exposed to more intuitive ideas and just be in a collective where you know that there is more than what the eye can see. So there will be biweekly psychic and mediumship practice circles, weekly intuitive tips and education on manifestation, as well as energetic hygiene, which is so, so important. I know a lot of you are already a part of the patron, the Patreon, and this is going to be a little bit different than the murder and mediumship Patreon. It will be completely separate from the podcast itself and is a product of Catherine Ann Intuitive. So click in the show notes to be alerted to this beauty launching, get on the email list and it will be out May 1st, 2022. Thank you for bearing with me through those announcements. They're not normally so long and I am ready to get to the case. So Aubrey Dameron spent her life making sure that others were seen and heard and that they felt accepted by someone, even if she was that only someone. She grew up in a small town of Grove, Oklahoma, on the outskirts of Cherokee Nation. And if you haven't already listened to the show's episodes of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, then go back and listen to the episode on Olivia Lone Bear, which is episode 46. 
listen to Missing in Blackfeet Nation, uh, Monica Still Smoking in Arden Pepion, episode 45, Murder on Blackfeet Nation, Matthew Grant, The Disappearance of Ashley Loring Heavy Runners, Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, and Daisy May Heath. Most of the episodes in the 40s are about missing or murdered Indigenous men or women. And through those episodes, you will learn a little bit about how difficult it is to involve law enforcement in these cases with incredibly confusing jurisdictional discrepancies, as well as a general lack of funding. So just to brush up a little bit on what's what I'm touching on and why it's difficult in this episode, what is so frustrating about law enforcement overall when it's concerning missing and murdered Indigenous women, check those episodes out. You will not be disappointed. The small town that Aubrey grew up in honestly sounds a lot like mine. With a population of around 7,000 in a rural area, diversity just wasn't widely seen, let alone accepted. So fortunately, when Aubrey came out as gay, she had her uncle Christian to come out to safely and with great support and acceptance. And Christian also came out to her. And just as an aside, these two were actually only six months apart in age. I feel like we often hear uncle aunt and we're thinking they're much older, right? So she was very close in age to her uncle. They were more like brother and sister. And through much of her life, Aubrey faced some pretty intense discrimination for being gay, especially in a small town and eventually coming out as trans. She and Christian had rocks thrown at them and derogatory slurs hurled at them while leaving high school. And her immediate family wasn't so accepting either. After coming out as gay to her family in middle school, her biological father stopped taking her out with him and would only interact with and give attention to her brother. According to an article published on Oxygen.com, Aubrey had switched to a different school due to her identity being, quote, distracting to classmates. And this isn't decades and decades ago, friends. Aubrey disappeared in 2019 at the age of 25. If this was in high school, then it couldn't have been much longer ago than 2009. To move a student because of their gender identity being a distraction, I just can't even imagine. But I'm sure that this isn't the only time, the first time, or the last time that it happened. According to her cousin Christian, she had moved to New Mexico with a boyfriend in late 2017, early 2018, but she moved back to Oklahoma in late 2018. It was rumored that there was abuse involved in this relationship, but that her boyfriend alleges that Aubrey moved back to Oklahoma to, quote, get clean, which makes zero sense to me as she moved back into a trailer park with her mom, brother, and stepdad, who were all in active addiction using methamphetamine. During her time in New Mexico, Christian maintains that Aubrey stayed in pretty much constant contact with him, as well as his sister, Pam. And these are her mom's siblings, her mom, Jennifer. And I can't imagine moving back in with a woman who, according to other sources, practically disowned her, her own child. And that must have been so painful to begin with. Um, Her aunt, Pam, and Christian said that in the weeks leading up to Aubrey's disappearance, she had kind of become a little more quiet and she wasn't reaching out as much, which was super uncommon for her. Even through her time in New Mexico, like I said, they were in constant contact. And intuitively, I'd like to insert some insight here. I do feel like Aubrey was back in active addiction and perhaps didn't want Christian or her aunt Pam to know about it. And that's why she was kind of growing silent. Um, She was drug use was a big reason for the breakup that occurred between Aubrey and her boyfriend. And back home, she kind of fell further into it, I think. And Aubrey was last seen on March 9th, 2019 by her mom at about 3.30 in the morning. According to her mother, 
or at least one of her mother's stories, because there are multiple versions of events that her mother spins. Aubrey, or she got up to use the bathroom in the middle of the night and saw Aubrey getting ready to leave the house. Aubrey then informed her that she was going out to meet a friend and headed out the door. According to her mom, she was able to discern exactly what Aubrey was wearing at the time. A black skirt, black jacket, black boots, and a black and black fishnet pantyhose. Another variation of her mother's story was that she had woken up and seen Aubrey leaving, but there was no interaction between the two of them. Yet, she was still able to discern exactly what her daughter was wearing. Pam found out a few days later that Aubrey was missing when a friend of hers reached out on social media asking if Aubrey was missing. After making some calls to law enforcement, she was able to find out, in fact, that Aubrey was missing and had last been seen by her mother, again Pam's sister, on the 9th and was reported missing on the 11th. Delaware County Sheriff's Office insisted that Pam call Aubrey's mother to find out more details about her disappearance. And later, one of Aubrey's best friends, who remains unnamed, claims that Aubrey had been missing since the 6th of March. Aubrey's phone last pinged, though, around 100 yards away from her mother's home at 3.42 a.m. One week later, Aubrey's Aunt Pam calls the sheriff's department again and is told by a sheriff that he's just being briefed on the case. A week later. The next day, March 19th, 2019, Pam calls yet again to see what's going on with Aubrey's case, and the captain gets on the phone with her. Captain Wells tells her that Aubrey's case is not a missing persons case. He says that due to her lifestyle, she is not considered a missing person. Pam inquired as to whether or not that meant because of her being trans, and Captain Wells argued that it wasn't exactly what it meant. Aubrey being Cherokee, an indigenous person put her in a higher risk category to begin with. Then adding the fact that she was gay put her in yet another high risk category for something horrific happening to her, for crimes like that happening to her. And then adding in that she was trans again puts her in yet another high risk category. She was in so many categories of individuals more likely to experience violence against them. And unfortunately, adding the likelihood of drug use to the list raised that risk factor again. The overall picture is that Captain Wells, I believe, was referencing to, but no matter what her gender identity was or sexual orientation or drug use status was, she deserved to be looked for. And law enforcement, as per usual, with missing indigenous persons, they weren't doing that. Wells even says during an interview with Oxygen.com that what made this this case unique was actually her lifestyle. Not only was she transgender and very sexually active, but she was a known drug abuser. And, you know, truthfully, even without the drug use, I feel like she would have been ignored simply because of being trans and indigenous. It's just, it's gut-wrenching. And again, go back and listen to some of these other cases if you haven't yet, because you will see time and time again when people go missing, when indigenous persons go missing, Law enforcement often looks the other way, and it's not always a lack of jurisdictional um, understanding. It can even be as simple as they just deny the case because they don't, quote, have enough resources. But we've seen what happens when pretty white women go missing, right? The resources are all readily available. So it's, it's really a load of BS, in my opinion. Anyway... Aubrey's family has largely been responsible for gathering resources, draining ponds, conducting searches, and hanging flyers. Often her flyers would be removed or someone would scrawl her dead name across her photograph, which I'm not even going to share what her dead name is. If you guys don't know what a dead name is, 
it's basically the name that you're given at birth. But when you're trans and you choose another name, that is your name. And using the dead name is actually very disrespectful. And please don't come at me with hate if there's anything that I'm explaining incorrectly or needs to be explained even a little bit differently kindly send me a message over Instagram or Facebook or um, not Facebook ever really. I don't check that very often or email. Let me know because I am working so hard to educate myself about these topics to make sure that I'm delivering the information respectfully and accurately. But if something is incorrect, please, please let me know. In the early days of the search, the first being March 23rd, a full two weeks after she was last seen, Smith mentions that There should have been more family around to help, but there wasn't. Interestingly, it was the girlfriend of Aubrey's brother who reported her missing two days after she had last been seen. And her mom, Jennifer Bird, and stepdad didn't have much to do with the searches. On one occasion, Christian had been to the home where Aubrey had been staying to look for anything that could help him out. And as he got into Aubrey's room, everything had been bagged up. Her mother said that Aubrey had been looking for a specific bottle of nail polish and, quote, cleaned up in an effort to find it, but cleaned it up into garbage bags as if you're moving out or getting rid of everything is super peculiar. When he returned with Pam, everything had been hung up, but not at all how Aubrey would have hung it. And this is something that never sat right with them. And and understandably so. The whole thing just reeks of confusion and suspicion And a lot of fingers have been pointed, but no one will come out on any media, um, media channels or social media or anything like that and say who they think is responsible, which we're going to get to that anyway. Three months into the search, a black leather jacket was found near what appeared to be a shallow grave and the DNA evidence collected was reportedly inconclusive. But Pam believes that it's unreliable as her family couldn't even bother with the searches Why should they believe that they gave law enforcement anything authentic to compare Aubrey's DNA to, if it was even collected correctly to begin with? And if you listen to the Vanish podcast episode covering her disappearance, one of the most thorough episodes about her disappearance, where you also hear Christian speaking a lot through it, you'll hear them comment on this idea about the jacket and the DNA. The FBI eventually stepped in, but even then, it was because of a shift in laws pertaining to jurisdiction. It wasn't because they came in willingly or to help. They legally, at that point, gained jurisdictional rights to Aubrey's disappearance. I don't believe they were called in prior to that. Christian talks about how many people would report to the family that they had thought they'd seen her so many months ago but that they hadn't reported it to authorities. And I can't understand why one wouldn't just report seeing her, especially with cell phones in everyone's purses, pockets, and hands. However, here we are three years later and seemingly no closer to knowing where Aubrey is. Something that struck me in this research that I wanted to learn more about was the concept of being two-spirit. So I wanted to be able to further educate where possible on things that we may not understand due to lack of exposure or for whatever reason otherwise. According to researching for LGBTQ2S plus health community collaboration and change, identifying as two-spirit is a term used by some indigenous people to describe sexual gender and or spiritual identity. They further elaborate to say that some indigenous languages do not have terms to describe sexual identities such as gay, lesbian, or bisexual, but are verb-focused instead, meaning that they describe what people do rather than how they identify. 
And this can include relationships that are considered poly, transgender persons, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transsexual, genderqueer, or have multiple gender identities. Two-spirit isn't something new by any means whatsoever. In fact, more than 150 pre-colonial American indigenous tribes acknowledged their genders in their communities. Rigidity in gender was part of colonialism and was gender fluidity was a lot more common in Native American society than it was in European society. So not only did colonialism in their cultures marginalize based on ethnic identity, but also gender identity. And we know that children were ripped from their families in an effort to colonize indigenous persons in the U.S. and in Canada. And two-spirit leaders were seen as bridging the gap between genders. And this is such a beautiful sentiment, one that Europeans came in and forced cultural assimilation, destroying gender identities that were different from male-female, such as being two-spirited. So what happened to Aubrey? There was a couple, a couple of sources mentioned how there had been an argument between her and her stepfather days before her disappearance. And honestly, I feel like this is a part of it. So what do I see? I see family. I see that, yes, it was a hate crime, but that Aubrey very much knew her killer. And I do believe she was killed. I believe that there was drug debt involved, and I do believe that one person is directly responsible for her death, but multiple are responsible for the cover-up. There's no doubt in my mind that there are at least four people who know exactly what happened, and a handful more who strongly suspect, but just haven't been able to provide proof so far. The offenders got lucky. And when I say that there was a drug debt involved, I feel like it wasn't that it was collected by her being killed, it was more that there was anger, there was anger and fury and rage, and it all kind of came to a head around Aubrey and the person responsible. So it was absolutely a hate crime. The motivation was hate for her and who she was and how she showed up in the world. And the one ultimately responsible for her death couldn't stand that she was trans and was furious when she came back home. I just keep getting the phrase like laughing stock, laughing stock, like people made fun of him for her being affiliated with him. The dating app, they, they do talk about, and a couple of sources as well, uh, the app Grinder and how she was on that. So a lot of people suspect that she was taken by basically someone she was meeting to go on a date with. I believe when her mom says that she was going to meet up with someone, that that wasn't a conversation that was ever had, that Aubrey was killed earlier that night. And essentially that was just her cover up. That's what she made up and told law enforcement and other people. But the Grinder dating app, they have no access to it without her phone. It doesn't back up to any kind of cloud or data source. You have to have the physical phone to have it. And that phone has not been found. She wasn't meeting anyone that night. And I really, I feel like her phone was in some sort of like canvas bag and was smashed so that it wouldn't be able to be found or turned on again. And when I say canvas bag, think like those drawstring bags or like backpack style, something like that. And it was like smashed or run over or something where all of those fragmented pieces wouldn't be kind of exploded all around. They would have just collected in that bag and then they got rid of that. I believe she was driven far from where she lived, but also that by the time she was reported missing, she was long out of the way. 
The thing is that law enforcement doesn't care enough because one, she's indigenous, two, she's trans, and three, she's a drug user. None of these are reasons to not look for someone. Aubrey deserves to be found, but I don't believe that she will be. I unfortunately don't believe that her killers or killer will be held accountable either. And I so wish that I'm wrong here. I really hope that I'm wrong here. If you are new to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women episodes of Murder and Mediumship, then please go back and scroll through and listen to a few more. If you want to learn more about the the Aubrey Dameron case, then look her up on the Vanish podcast and listen to what they've covered with it. With those interviews, you really can't beat that. It's I, I really check that out. I highly recommend it. And there's a lot of information sprinkled in about why it's so difficult to get action from law enforcement. While laws are changing and shifting all the time, nothing's happening quickly enough and nothing helps Aubrey at this point. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and five stars so that we can land these stories into the ears of even more listeners. You never know who could hear and need to push, need the push to come forward with information that could solve a case. If you are able to donate even $5 a month to support murder and mediumship, your donation goes to support a different charity related to the cases we cover. Each quarter, we choose a charity. And last quarter, like I said earlier in the beginning of the episode, we raised over $1,000 for Black, queer, and intersectional, intersectional community. So what can we raise this quarter? How far can we get and who can we help? And with that, as always... Thank you for listening and for making a difference in this world, and I'll catch you all next time.